take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 15. Last week we were in Genesis 12, briefly at the end. Uh, Genesis 15, which is probably not that encouraging to all of you thinking, wow, three chapters ahead. Well, we'll try to do a little bit better than that. This is the second sermon in a series of probably eight in total that are going to take us to the beginning of the book of Daniel which is the next book that we are going to be looking at together. We are laying a foundation. If you have missed a sermon here or there and you are not familiar with this story, I would encourage you, uh, that is the story of the Bible, to uh, go onto the internet and catch up what you missed because uh, we are doing this with a lot of thought and effort to be comprehensive, at least as comprehensive as we can in the summary format. Now we're going to read Genesis 15 verses 1 through 6. And then we're going to lead into them. Um, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, You have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. This is the second reiteration of God's promise to Abram, and we'll get there uh, as we go along. Many people, when they look at the Bible, see a collection of stories with no real significance to order or cohesive storytelling. To them, the Bible is just one giant collection of moral myths in these volumes of pages that Christians count as holy. Not only are they wrong about the stories being myths, and we should pause there and just make it clear in case you're uncertain about the kind of church that you are in this morning, we believe every page of the Bible and consider ourselves to be neither gullible or stupid, but the Bible is not only a collection of true stories, but a ordered chronological story. And I endeavored to call this last week Redemption's story. Now, last week I told you that I was concerned that many Christian people are unfamiliar with this one singular story in the Bible. And so when they come to church or Bible studies or whenever they engage with the scriptures, they hear stories from the Bible and they might get something out of those stories in the short term. But after they go and they resume their daily lives, uh, the story or the message that they heard during their time in God's word simply doesn't index. It doesn't register its place in the larger story of redemption that God is telling. They know it belongs in there somewhere, and they might have some idea of where it belongs, but it's not a part of one cohesive story. So what we're trying to do is take a summary approach to the singular story of the Bible. From the book of Genesis, to the book of Daniel, which is the book that we're going to engage in in our next series of sermons uh, here in a few weeks. Um, Now, as I said last week, there are 
850 chapters between Genesis 1 and Daniel 1. And we're going to try to summarize the story to catch us up to Daniel chapter 1 in a period of seven to eight weeks. That's a lot of ground to cover in seven or eight weeks, which is why I would encourage you, if you miss a sermon, uh, try to catch up. Try to listen to it because we're going to cover lots of ground. I will also do my best to supplement the sermons with some handout material from time to time to try to help you organize this and keep it in your Bibles with you, and that's how it's going to be for the next couple of months. Last week, we summarized three introductory stories to the Bible, the very first three, creation, the fall of man, which is often called just the fall, not the season, but the story, and three, Cain and Abel. So creation, the fall of man, and Cain and Abel. We concluded last week by reading from Genesis chapter 12, which is the first place that God promises Abraham that in his lineage, in his descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Um, which is to say that as God has promised a Savior who will defeat Satan and who will restore creation to its rightful order, that promise comes in Genesis 3. In Genesis 12, we find that promise will be fulfilled in the lineage, in the family of this man, Abram. Quite apart from anything that Abram did to deserve that, Quite apart from any, any great deed that he did to merit that, God is simply progressing us through the story to tell us now that we can expect this Messiah, this is the man from whom this Messiah will come. He has told us in creation, God has, that man and woman were made in his own image. I can't emphasize to you enough the importance of that distinction in creation. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, are, if you will, the crowning jewel of God's earthly creation. In Genesis 1.26, we read this. God says, let us make man in our image. This is after all of the other created things. Let us make man in our own image. It goes on to say, Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. Genesis 1.26 also gives us some idea of what God's purpose is in creating man and woman in his own image. It says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth. Let them have dominion and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. No other piece of creation gets this treatment. No animal, no land feature, no star, no planet. I have often wondered to myself if there isn't a sense of jealousy in Satan that even the angels are not given any kind of dominion as of this described over all of the earth. Being made in the image of God is not merely some sort of visible description. But to mankind, God has given the ability to reason and to think and to govern in the image of how God himself might govern. To mankind, God has given creative faculties. And I want you to think about this for a minute. You must possess creative faculties to govern. And as I speak to you now through a microphone, not this one, but this one, and my sound, my voice is being amplified to you to make it easier for you to hear. 
in a room heated by boilers and the machinery of a furnace in the back to make it more comfortable, in a building crafted and engineered to sustain the weight of the weather and protect us from the elements, being recorded in digital format in order to be uploaded to a vast communications network so that people all over the world might hear the words that I am saying right now. The mind and the creativity of mankind is distinct among all of God's creation. We are made in the image of God. Moreover, Genesis 1.28 says, Then God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's as if God created this vast earth and then said, go use your creative faculty and your dominion. Go subdue the earth. Go. He created for us a place in which our creativity might flourish. And gave us dominion over it. So we see God's intent that mankind govern and rule and have dominion. But in Genesis 3, as we saw last week, the enemy of God, a fallen angel as it's described to us. Himself a creation called Lucifer as it's described to us both in the minor prophets. Tempts man and woman to rebel against God. And just as Satan, whom he has later referred to himself... Just as Satan strives to be his own autonomous godlike being, he entices Eve to pursue the same. Eve does it by deception and Adam by willful choice. They rebel against God and in so doing, take the crowning jewel of God's creation and bring it into the rebellion of Satan. So creation and then the fall. These are ordered stories. We have no idea how much time passed between creation and the fall. We don't know how much time. Um, I have seen people make speculative guesses, hours, days, years. We have no idea. It's purely speculation to guess. But we know that as God was judging Adam and Eve, as he's judging Satan in the judgment of Adam and Eve, he promises in that judgment to bring about an enemy to Satan which is a, an interesting judgment to give someone. I will raise up an enemy against you. That's what he says in the fall and the judgment. Uh, this, is, this enemy will come from the offspring of the woman. The enemy will be one of these creatures that Satan has decided to corrupt. There will be an enemy from her offspring. Um, Satan's desire was to bring Adam and Eve into the rebellion against God, just as he himself was rebelling. But now God, in Genesis 3.15, is telling Satan that he will bring about Satan's own enemy from the offspring of Eve. Genesis 3.15 says the enemy who will be born of Eve will break or crush the head of the serpent. Will break, it will destroy Satan. It will crush the head of the serpent. It will leave him with no life, with nothing left. Uh, but that the serpent will bruise the enemy's heel, bruise the enemy's foot. For those of us who may struggle anatomically, you can live with a bruised heel. You can't live with a crushed head. And there's a sense of that in the judgment here. In other words, there will be strife and conflict from this offspring of the woman, this enemy of Satan and Satan himself. 
and the offspring of the woman will be victorious, even as uh, Satan himself does some sort of wounding and damaging to him. And so we see from the opening chapters of the Bible, this is all about Jesus. In the choir we sang this morning, it's all about you, and it is repetitive. That song is repetitive. We repeat, it's all about you, and it may be repetitive, but it is not wrong. It is all about Jesus. Jesus is the enemy of Satan promised in Genesis chapter 3. He is the one from the lineage of Abram promised in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. Jesus is the one who would die on the cross as Satan seeks to destroy him. And yet in wounding Jesus at the cross, he is unable to slay him for Jesus rises from the grave. He doesn't have victory over Jesus. And instead, the very wounding of Jesus by Satan becomes the instrument by which Jesus claims victory over Satan himself. Jesus's resurrection from the grave brings man back into a condition in which they may have eternal life, which is what Satan ruined and corrupted originally. So in the biting of this enemy's heel, that this snake of a serpent Satan does at the cross, it becomes the very destruction of Satan himself. And it's at the return of Christ that Satan will be ultimately judged and condemned eternally. This is all groundwork being laid in the book of Genesis at the beginning of the Bible. What follows is merely the cohesive story of what's happening. Now, when I'm thinking through the Bible, it's very easy for my mind to go from Adam and Eve to the story of Cain and Abel. And we covered Cain and Abel last week. We'll not recover it this week. But there's a reason for this story about these two brothers, one who murders the other. And there are at least two things, two fascinating things that we have to observe. This will be review for some of you, and for many of you whom the weather prohibited from being here, this will be new. Number one, we learn in the story of Cain and Abel that although Adam and Eve have been excluded from intimate fellowship with God, although they have been removed from the Garden of Eden, even in their immediate offspring, God has provided some way for them to have some sort of fellowship with Him in this sacrificial system. Now, now, we don't get the sacrificial system described to us between Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4. And yet, it's clearly there because Abel is found offering an animal sacrifice, a lamb. And his sacrifice of a firstborn lamb of his flock is accepted by God and he has fellowship with God. And yet, his brother Cain makes an offering to God that is not a blood sacrifice. God rejects it even while admonishing Cain to make the right kind of sacrifice, like his brother Abel. So clearly, although it's not clearly spelled out for us the instructions of God in the text at this point, clearly Cain and Abel know God's desire in this sacrificial system. And while Cain violates it, Abel does not. The first fascinating thing then we see in the story is although God has expelled Adam and Eve, who are sinners from the presence of a holy, almighty God. He has not written human beings off, and he desires some sort of fellowship with them, looking toward this Savior who will be born. And the second alarming thing found in the story of Cain and Abel is that the presence of sin is far more destructive than what Adam and Eve themselves could have ever predicted when they chose to join in Satan's rebellion. Sin, which is found in Cain, is not merely something that aligns him satanically with the rebels against God, but it becomes a pervasive, corrupting thing in the heart of a sinner. 
sin is not only moral failing, but sin becomes a slave master, demanding evil action from human beings, internally corrupting the way that we think, feel, and behave so that we do not even recognize the depravity of our own sinfulness, oftentimes when we're on the very doorstep of doing something evil. Sin becomes a master. And we dealt with Paul's treatment of this in the New Testament last week, where he decries his own personal situation and says, O wretched man that I am! The things that I don't want to do are the things that I find myself doing. The things that I know I should do are the things that I can't will myself to do. And he says, the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? He finds in himself a new master, a new captivity, sin. And he asks, who can save me from this? And he concludes his treatise on the other side of the cross by saying, I praise God through Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Genesis 3. So we are telling one cohesive story. It is no surprise then, when we think about the corruption of sin, that the very next description of the world that we receive in Genesis 6 is as awful and terrible as Genesis 6-5 makes it out to be. You can turn there and read it with me or listen quietly. But on the the heels of the story of Cain and Abel, where we find out that a brother can be so corrupted by sin as to destroy, to murder his own brother, we read this testimony of the world many generations later in verse 5 of Genesis 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Generations of time passes, and sin has made slaves of all human beings. When it says that the intent of their heart was only evil continually, the idea here is, as Paul says in Romans, They have found themselves to be mastered so thoroughly by sin, they don't even realize the intentions of their heart come from sin and selfishness and evil. They don't even see it for themselves. Their intentions, their thoughts, their desires, and their pursuits are completely mastered by sin. And at this point, this far removed from Adam and Eve and fellowship with God, there is no fellowship with God on behalf of men on the earth. There is only rejection. The very thing that lies in your and I's hearts when we, knowing that we should do the right thing, still find ourselves making excuse not to do the right thing, even knowing that it will cause difficulty in our relationship with God, they are dealing with but without the presence of the Holy Spirit, and it has totally subjugated mankind. You might wrestle on a Sunday morning to wake up and come to church and have fellowship with God's people and worship Him, right? You deal with that. These are a people apart from the Spirit of God in total idolatry. They are so corrupted, you and I would not recognize the society they live in. You think that our world is bad, and yet our world still has the light of Christ. 
Our world still has the promise of truth. Our world still has the influence of the Holy Spirit through his church in ways almost unrecognizable to the world itself. It is being influenced by the work of God. This world is in total darkness in Genesis 6. There are three quick observations we make about the pre-flood world. One, you would not have recognized this world, either morally or the environment in this world. You would not have recognized it. In the same way morally as you would not recognize a tribal people who have never been exposed to anything good of God, as you would not realize the depravity there, you would not recognize this world. Um, there are stories of missionaries who have gone to tribal places with no exposure to the glory of God, no exposure to the word of God. They often do not live very long. Just as you would be shocked and appalled at the evil that you would find in a place untouched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you would have been shocked and appalled morally by a pre-flood world. But the environment itself would have also been unrecognizable to you. More on that in a minute. Genesis 6 is very clear. Second thing we observe, that there were fallen angels akin to Satan who had joined his rebellion against God and were active on the earth. Even goes so far as to having offspring with people on the earth, which is both grotesque and yet not difficult to imagine. More on that in a minute. Three, God promises destruction in Genesis 6 because this world has ruined itself. This is the significance of verse 5. This is a world entirely devoid of righteousness. Um, a couple of quick comments on those first two points. Once again, I'll tell you, I would thoroughly enjoy a good discussion about this. You want to have me over and provide a caffeinated uh, diet beverage? I'll sit on your couch or your, your uh, porch with you. It's a little cold for that, but wherever you want. Or you can come over to my house and we'll discuss these things because I am flying by 850 chapters of the Bible in seven or eight weeks on a mission and on a purpose. But these will not be long and drawn out debates. And nevertheless, uh, I think you'll enjoy it. I think you will enjoy a discussion on these things if you haven't had them before. Uh, but a few quick comments will have to suffice for this morning. On the first point, that the world prior to the flood would not have been recognizable to you, let me say, over the course of my lifetime, there has been a dramatic shift in scientific opinion, in published scientific thought on the idea of global flooding in the last 15,000 years. When I was a child, which means by extension when most of you were children, when I was a child, uh, there was the idea that maybe global flooding happened at some point in time, but it was millions of years ago millions of years ago. And that's what was in the textbooks. Now, it's almost silly today in the scientific community to say uh, such a thing as that, that there was no global, global fl flooding in the last 15,000 years. It is incredibly obvious geographically that there were global flooding events over the last 15,000 years. Not local, but global. The only questions are, what caused it? How long did it last? And did it happen all at once globally or in stages? Um, in other words, did it happen in different localities in stages? That's the scientific question that people wrestle with today. But there is very little doubt that our planet experienced global flooding in the last 15,000 years, which fits the biblical timeline. This flooding reshaped the landscape of the world that you and I recognize today. It wiped out prior civilizations of which there is increasingly great evidence. 
Now, the Bible says that the water came from above and below. It was not merely rain. If you say that a global flood occurred merely by raindrops falling on people's head, it sounds like a ridiculous physical explanation for such a situation. But the Bible says that's not where the flood waters came from. They came from above and below. The water did not return to its original place when it came from above and below. I personally subscribe to something called the canopy theory. Again, that's probably a Diet Coke conversation at your house. Um, however, I believe that the flood not merely changed uh, the landscape, but also changed environmentally the world in which humans live. That coupling with the diversity of gene pool that was eliminated in the destruction from the flood explains why, without explanation in the Bible, people immediately begin to live increasingly shorter lifespans. The Bible tells us people live for a very long time, the flood happened, and immediately they begin to live a much shorter period of time. It doesn't offer an explanation. It doesn't feel the need to. It simply tells us that's what happens. Very soon after the flood, we find people living perfectly reasonable lifespans with what we live in today, and that is testified to in the genealogies. Again, probably a Diet Coke conversation. So, you would not have recognized the world prior to the flood. Did not look like the world today. I believe many ancient mysteries and things on the earth that we can't explain find their roots in civilization before the flood. Quick comment on the idea of fallen angels living among people prior to the flood. Number one, ancient peoples did not merely invent all of their gods. They did not merely invent all of their gods. They didn't wake up one day and decide to start worshiping uh, specific deities in strange new ways with strange new laws and sacrifices. Now, there's no doubt that over thousands of years, the worship and the backgrounds of these false gods changed, evolved, devolved with different mythologies and stories grew out of them, but they didn't merely invent them alone. Ancient idols are not merely the figment of people's imaginations. People are not so quick to merely enslave themselves to false ideas. The ancient civilizations of the earth themselves shout to us about visitations from supernatural beings, both among them occasionally, but also their ancestors. The Bible explains these were not gods. They were angelic creations of God who joined in Satan's rebellion. And I will remind you at this point, what is the nature of Satan's rebellion itself but to be worshipped as God? I will ascend to the holy mountain of God, we read in the prophets. That's Satan's thinking. So is it any surprise that the angels who join him in satanic rebellion also themselves desired and created a culture of worship among those whom they visited and misled? Um, in the flood, God is not merely destroying human beings. He is resetting civilization who has given themselves over to the worship of evil beings and in the process have entirely ruined themselves. We get a sense of this in the savagery of human sacrifice that we find in ancient peoples worshiping these false gods. We get a sense of this in the sexual deviancy worshiping these false gods. And we get a sense of it in the genocidal brutality of people worshiping these false gods. Now, there are records of global flooding from all over the world. And you should pause and consider that for a second. There are Noah-like 
stories from all over the world, and when I say all over the world, I mean continentally all over the world, occurring by their own testimony at about the same time in human history. Again, there's, there's lots of circumstantial evidence apart from geographical evidence of global flooding, but how would all of those people from all over the world survive a flood? And then how would they come up with accounts that sound so similar in many ways to the story of Noah's flood? It's almost as if they all date back to a family and a people that experienced the same thing, and then as they were dispersed and corrupted into idolatry, changed and altered their stories. It is ridiculous to imagine that there was not a flood-like event and a survival akin to Noah's flood when you consider the ancient mythologies from people who should have had no communicative you know, uh, uh, relationship with each other continentally until modern history connected by global communication, and yet that's what we find. Noah's Ark is a miraculous story. I have no problem with that. Noah doesn't go around capturing all the animals himself. Um, that would be superhuman. Noah doesn't do that. The animals miraculously come to him. Well, which animals come to him? All the animals that God brought to him came to him. Well, were there some species or sets of subspecies that were not saved in the flood? God knows, I don't. The ones that were saved are the ones God brought. Noah didn't go out with his little net and start capturing them all. Uh, God did this miraculously. Again, I have no problem with this. Noah was given a job and a very long time to do the job. Build, we call it a boat, but it's effectively a barge. Build something that can float. And he's given very specific dimensions for this. He doesn't survive a global flood in a tree as the Aztec tradition from South America or Central America describes. He doesn't, oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, Noah's flood is just a corruption of the story of Gilgamesh from the ancient Sumerians. Okay, the story of Gilgamesh says that one of the ancient Sumerian leaders was seeking wisdom in the world, Gilgamesh, and he went and he found an immortal man who told him about something that happened to him long ago where he, where he survived a great flood with the help of the gods, and because he survived the floods, the gods made him immortal. Sounds similar to Noah's Ark, but a little bit fantasized because there are no immortal men. Okay, I mean, he would still be around to talk to us about it if that were the case. That's the ancient Sumerian story. Again, two different continents, two similar stories, two completely implausible solutions. But to me, it is not implausible to suggest that Noah could build this barge. And I have no problem with the miraculous account of God surviving uh, uh, Noah and his family and the animals that he brought to him in this flood. Noah built the ark. Noah got into the ark. Noah waited on the Lord. Noah got out of the ark. That's the extent of Noah's superhumanity. He got in, he waited, and he got out. Civilization started over. That's a summary of the flood. It doesn't really need to be much more complicated than that. Now, all the details are there. I encourage you to read them. We go from the flood to the final, and, and uh, we'll wrap with this today, what's really the final introductory story. And I believe there, there are really five introductory stories here. This is the final one, and it's the Tower of Babel. The, the idolatry in Genesis 11, the idolatry in Genesis 11 has returned. It has returned. We know that the idolatry before the flood is part of the corruption God is dealing with in the flood. And yet in Genesis 11, the idolatry has returned. God told the descendants of Noah to spread out on the earth. Instead, they have gathered together in the land of Shinar. Now, Shinar is what we would call Babylon or modern-day Iraq. 
Babylon in modern-day Iraq uh, becomes symbolic in the, old, in, the old, in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New, uh, for idolatry itself because of this story. Um, because of the fact that God resets civilization with the flood, he gives men uh, instructions, and yet they assemble in Babylon, pre-Babylon, and they build this tower, and they make this statement of idolatry against God in this place that would become Babylon, which itself is a seed of idolatry. Babylon, throughout the Bible, going all the way to the book of Revelation, becomes symbolic for idolatry against God. It has its roots here in the beginning. Again, one cohesive story. And here in Genesis 11, people re-engage in idolatry. God intervenes, again, miraculously. I don't have any problem with that. I believe in serving a God who can do things that are supernatural. I don't believe anyone should serve a God who can only do things that can confer with the laws of nature. I don't know why you would worship a God that's no more powerful than you. So I have no problem as a believer in God believing that he does supernatural things. And here, God supernaturally confuses their language and disperses them. I don't know what that means. I don't know how. I don't know the mechanics, but I know exactly what it says, and it's why it wraps the fifth introductory story. And it makes perfect sense to me why there are flood accounts like Noah's from all over the face of the earth, from different continents that should have had absolutely no communication or uh, similarity in their background stories, and yet they do. It even explains to me why there are animal sacrifices and even corrupted human sacrifices all over the planet in all ancient civilizations. It explains to me why so many of the false gods that are worshipped all over the planet in ancient civilizations have such similarity among them because from their idolatry in Babylon, they were dispersed miraculously. I don't need to see any land bridges. I don't need to understand how they got across an ocean. I know God dispersed them. Good enough for me. Good enough for me. May not be good enough for you. That may be a Diet Coke conversation. Good enough for me. Okay, um, and that really wraps the five introductory stories. And what's happening in these stories? God is not describing the entire history of the world. God is describing how the world came to be the world that we recognize it to be today. If you can put these five stories in order and understand their significance, you can understand why the world is the way that it is. Um, if God had left any of those stories out, we would not have understood how the world came to be as it is now. But he's given it to explain how we got here, how it began, creation, how evil came to be. Why are people the way that they are, the fall? Why is there death if God created the fall? The nature of evil inside human beings, Cain and Abel, the pervasiveness of it, the captivity of it, the story of Noah. The pervasiveness of Satan and idolatry in the world. Why are there all of these gods? Why are there all of these evil things disguised as religion of a one true God? The reshaping of the world because of it in the flood and the dispersion of ancient peoples and languages in the Tower of Babel. If you can remember those five stories, you know what you need to know to set the stage for the rest of the story. So some people are so overwhelmed by the stories of the Bible, but I'm telling you, it's not that hard. If you can, over time, maybe a few days, just recount those five stories a few times, you can set the stage for the story of redemption that God's promised in Genesis 3. Now, 
Over the years, I have heard all sorts of speculation on Abram's background. Abram, who will become Abraham, and you'll just have to forgive me if I accidentally call him Abraham before I'm supposed to in the text. But Abram slash Abraham, I have heard all sorts of ideas about his background. I think much of that is nonsense or at least speculation that someone might luckily get right. We are told very little about Abram's background. What are we told? Well, in Genesis 11, verse 31, we are told that Abram is a man from the land of Ur. Ur is an ancient land. You can read about it, you know, on on websites and history books. Ur is an ancient land. Ur of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are an ancient people. They were the precursors in some way to the Babylonians themselves. They were one of the people conquered as the Babylonian Empire developed. Abraham was one of those people. He was from the land of Ur. He was of the Chaldeans. Um, Ur, the Chaldeans, Babylon, Shinar, all modern-day Iraq, if the geography helps you at all. We read the promise made to Abram in Genesis 12 last week. This is Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, get out of your country. Leave Iraq. A lot of people want to do that these days. I understand. Get out of your country from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. So his first instruction to Abram, leave. By the way, uh, if I was teaching through this, uh, very slowly and, uh, and, and you know, exponentially, verse by verse, I would just make a point to tell you, we probably don't have any idea how much faith it took for Abraham to leave his homeland in ancient times and to leave the security of his family and the people that he knew and to simply go where God had told him to go. This is a complete... We think it's tough to move from city to city or state to state. This is to move in ancient times with no social support from one society to a foreign land. This is what God is calling on Abram to do. He says, I will make you a great nation, which implies great descendants. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And then here is the real unbelievable part of the promise. How it ends. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So if you think of the Bible as a story, God has now publicly identified the family from which the promised man of Genesis 3 would come. You say, well, how do you get that just from that promise? I don't get it just from that promise. I get it from the reiterated promise that God makes to Abram on several occasions and what God does in Abram's life and what he promises Moses and so on and so forth. Abram might be excused for believing God has promised me great offspring and somehow in my offspring all the families of the earth will be blessed. We have the scriptures to tell us the way all the families of the earth are to be blessed is in Jesus, the man from Genesis 3. The man from Genesis 3. Um, Genesis 15, which we read this morning, is a restatement of that promise, and Genesis 15 is where we will close. The context of Genesis 15, just to lay the groundwork, Abram has done what God told him to do. He left his family, he left his father, he went to a land that God would show him, and now he has gone out and he has had a great military victory. Um, He has gone out and he has rescued an entire civilization of people who had been captured by another civilization. He did this for the sake of his nephew Lot, and yet he has been incredibly victorious. 
And the people of whom he has rescued say to him, please take whatever you want from all the possessions which you have rescued, which you have saved from our capture. And Abram says, I'm not going to take anything. I'm going to give it all back. Uh, you know, I, I, he has a right to it, but I'm going to give it all back. This is Genesis 14, 22. Abram says, I've raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So Abram is protecting here the reputation of God because God has promised to make Abram great. God has promised to make Abram a nation, and he won't have the king of Sodom saying, Abram is great because of all the reward that he took from us. God responds to Abram privately in chapter 15, and we read this in verse 1. After these things, after Abram refuses the reward from the king of Sodom, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, and I am your exceedingly great reward. You see the contrast here? If you don't know Genesis 14, Genesis 15 will not make sense. God is saying, you have refused the reward of the king of Sodom. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your exceedingly great reward. Um, what is God telling us here? Well, he's not telling Abram anything uh, remarkably distinct from what he tells you and I. Trust me. Trust me. I will be your reward. Don't pursue all of these other things. I will be your reward. I will bless you. I will keep you. Trust me. It's the same story from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Verse 2 of Genesis 15, but Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And we can all pause here and say, that's pretty bold. God has showed up saying, Abram, I'll be your exceedingly great reward. And Abram basically says, I don't see it, Lord. <laughs> what reward are you going to give me? The heir of my house is this guy named Eliezer, who's not my son. He's just a steward, a manager of things. See, Abram's household was so large at this point in time. It wasn't just his house. He had a whole you know, litany of, of, of people around him. He was his own traveling civilization. And so in the event that he died, there were stewards and people who were prepared to step up and manage all the lives of all the people who were traveling with Abraham in this great, vast civilization of shepherds and of, uh, of, of all sorts of folks. And Eliezer was the guy who was in line to inherit all that. And he says, Lord, you promised me many descendants. And even though you've made me very wealthy and brought me into this land and you've given me everything that I have to this day, I don't have a child to inherit it. You are promising God to be my exceedingly great reward, but what reward from you matters if you do not fulfill your promise to give me descendants? The backstory here is that Abram is not a young man at this point in time, and this is a very difficult thing for him to... This is Abraham's point of struggle in the whole thing. Verse 4, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying... This one shall not be your heir. Eliezer of Damascus is not going to be your heir. But one who will come from your own body will be your heir. He makes it as explicit as he possibly can. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven. Count the stars if you're able to number them. He said, So shall your descendants be. So God reiterates his promise 
Abram will have more descendants than he can imagine. And it says he believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. This, by the way, is the front cover of the story Paul is writing in the New Testament when he tells us that Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. That's how you and I are saved too, by the way. Abraham was not counted as righteous because of all his righteous deeds. He was counted because he believed in God. Why are you made righteous before God? Because of all your righteous deeds? No, we are saved by faith, not of works. You believed God, and we achieved the righteousness of Christ through substitution. Verse 7, then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know I will inherit it? Now, we've already been told Abraham believed God, and yet he's still asking this question. How do I know? And I hear in this the sense in the New Testament where the man tells Jesus, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Abram is being honest. This is a point of struggle for me. I don't want to doubt you, Lord, but this is hard for me. How will I know? God is very merciful to Abram. And in verse 9, it says this. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and he cut them in two, down the middle. He placed them each piece opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in two. A little tiny for that. And when the vultures came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. There is this bloody path that has now been created. A gruesome, gory, bloody path on the ground that Abram has prepared. Abram is then keeping away the carrion birds who are coming to, to drawn by the blood to feast on these uh, animals that have been massacred here to create this trail of blood. It's gross. Um, it says in verse 12, When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, Horror and great darkness fell on him. God is visiting Abram in the night as he sleeps. Then he said to Abram in the dream, he said, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them. 400 years. The nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. But as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, long after your dead, Abram, they will return to here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, the judgment that I am going to bring on the Amorites who are in this land now is not yet ready, and I'm going to bring about that judgment by the return of your people. Verse 17, And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. The, the presence of God passes between this path of blood that's been made on the ground. And I know we say, what in the world does this mean? On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Yes, I have read all those names before. Now, that is as far as we go this morning. But the idea is, when ancient people, and this was a common practice, this, was not, this is not unique to the Bible, you can read about these customs outside of the Bible. When ancient people would make a serious covenant, a serious contract, a serious agreement with those 
who lived around them, perhaps even who dwelt in their land or in, in whose land they dwelt, they would prepare one of these bloody paths. And they would, upon stating the covenant that they were entering into, walk this bloody trail together with the person they were promising they were entering into this covenant with. The idea being that if I break this covenant, let it be to me as all of this massacre on the ground. Let it be to me and to mine as all of this bloodshed that we're walking through together. It was gross intentionally. It was nasty intentionally. The eye, it wasn't holy. It wasn't beautiful. It, wasn't, it, it was gross because it was the word of someone on a blood sacrifice. I will not break my word. And by walking down this path together, almost like a bride and groom walking down an aisle without all the blood and the guts and everything, they are entering publicly into this contract mutually. Together, they're doing this. Except in this case, God takes the path of blood alone, not Abram. God, which means Abram doesn't have any dependency in this contract. God is saying, in response to Abraham saying, Lord, how am I going to know this is going to happen? God is saying, I'll show you. And then he does this horrifying thing, which in dream, Abraham sees it happen, even though physically he's prepared at all. He does this thing which both horrifies Abram and assures him the Lord is going to keep his covenant. God is saying, I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. You go to sleep, Abram. It does not depend on you. Abram doesn't have to wake up tomorrow thinking, man, if I mess up and sin today, I'm not going to have that child that God promised me. Why is this good for us to think on? Because we too have fellowship with God by way of a covenant that was walked a path of blood by him alone. Jesus, with that cross to Golgotha in his own blood, not yours, not mine, made a covenant for us, with us, to God. That's why we observe the Lord's Supper. And we'll observe the Lord's Supper next week, by the way. We are remembering the covenant of the blood of Christ, where he says, on my own blood, I have redeemed this people. By my own blood, by myself, I have purchased for them an inheritance, just as God had for Abram here. By my own blood, I bring them to God. And that's how God maintains fellowship with Christian people. Not on your works, not on the grounds of what you and I have done, not on our own righteousness and the ability to become something more than what we are, but by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. This is why we sing songs like that. In Christ alone, my hope is found. It's the same story, folks, from front to back. And this is why it's so important. And I'll leave here. If you don't know the story, if you only know phrases and little pictures from the story, you miss the significance of what an eternal God is doing in these stories. Praise God, that doesn't need to be us. Now, I'm sure that I have probably stumbled and made a buffoon of myself uh, in many ways through these summaries. It's a lot of ground to cover fast, so I'll tell you again. If you want to talk about these things with me, I would enjoy nothing more with you than to sit down and talk about these things. But rest assured, 
God has a story of redemption that has unfolded and is unfolding still. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I love you. We worship you as the great God of creation. We recognize your power and supremacy in this world and in our lives. We ask, Father, that you will be to us a loving Father that guides and directs us. Father, I also ask pastorally that if there are those here today who do not know you or who are living out their own sinful rebellion against you or who need to repent of sin that they have not dealt with, who need to return to the cross or come to it and approach it for the first time, that you will humble their hearts and bring about repentance, that they may know you without the the struggle and the difficulty of sin standing between you and them. I pray, Father, that you will save the lost, that you will disciple all of us, and that you will bring us into our eternal inheritance. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.